Hi, my name is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast of the New Testament. I'll be using as the text the King James Version, along with the Joseph Smith Translation. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll also be using quotes from general authorities of the Church, the Apostles and Prophets, and BYU professors and others, and uh, every word out of the Scriptures themselves. So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi, and welcome back to this podcast. Today's episode is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you for being here, and I know that this isn't easy always to be listening to podcasts, but uh, hopefully you'll get be getting something out of all of these. Um, anyway, thanks for being here. Just a little overview of 2 Corinthians, uh, a couple of questions that it addresses. How does it, or what does it mean to be reconciled to God? How is our tithing sanctified, and how do church funds become holy? So some themes that are covered in this, uh, overcoming tribulation, forgiving others, feeling godly sorrow for our sins, becoming reconciled to God. The purpose of this epistle is to defend his work in the ministry, to commend the Corinthian saints for their improvements, since he last wrote, to defend his personal character and conduct, to encourage a generous financial gift for the impoverished saints of Jerusalem, and to speak of an impending third visit to Corinth. The grand theme of 2 Corinthians is the reconciliation of God to his children and of brother to brother through the atonement of Christ. Paul teaches three key doctrines about the atonement. The promise of the atonement is the key to overcoming adversity. We must forgive others if we expect to be forgiven, and godly sorrow for our sins enables us to claim the promises of the atonement. The audience for this one, Paul wrote uh, 2 Corinthians to the same church members he had addressed in 1 Corinthians and also to the saints living in Achaia. Achaia was essentially a Roman province comprising all of Greece. A growing discontent had arisen among the Corinthian saints due to the accusations of false teachers. Paul wrote to answer these accusations and to reassure the saints uh, in their faith. Shortly after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he sent his close friend Titus on a visit to Corinth to determine how his letter was received. While Paul waited for Titus's return, a riot developed in Ephesus in opposition to his teachings, so he fled to Macedonia. When Titus joined him again, Paul learned of the news from Corinth. False teachers had infiltrated the church there and were preying on the gullible for money. These teachers had accused Paul of taking money that was collected to assist the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem. They had also challenged his authority as an apostle. After hearing the concerns delivered by Titus, Paul wrote the letter known as 2 Corinthians sometime during A.D. 55-57. to Some of the unique features of this epistle is that Paul shared more autobiographical information in this letter than than in any other. He did so to answer his critics in Corinth who questioned his authority in the gospel and his loyalty to the gospel cause. That was out of the teacher's guide. Alrighty, um, Elder McConkie says, The second Corinthians is is not a definitive epistle. It does not analyze and summarize gospel doctrines as such. Instead, it applies already known doctrines to the circumstances of the Corinthians, much as an inspired sermon applies the gospel to the congregation in which it is preached. Yet, wise counselor that he was, Paul wove in sufficient doctrinal data to leave modern readers with a great sense of thanksgiving for the epistle. In it we read, among other things, of how God comforteth and careth for his saints, of the law of reconciliation, that there is no second chance for salvation for the saints, of how God's ministers gain approval, of the true principle of glorying in the Lord, of false apostles and the signs 
of true apostles, and we learn that Paul, like the three Nephites, was caught up into heaven and heard and saw things beyond mortal comprehension. So the heading of the chapter reads, God comforts and cares for his saints. The saints are sealed and given assurance by the Spirit in their hearts. So this is the beginning of chapter 1. All right, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in Achaia, in all Achaia. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is here acknowledging that God the Father is the literal Father of Jesus, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Marion D. Hinks said, He waits to be gracious, he loves to be merciful. The prophets call him the Father of mercies. They speak of his abundant mercy. And declare that whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy. They declare his wisdom, mercy, and grace, and crowning all of this is the testimony that our Father delighteth in mercy. The specialty of the Father is mercy. On a plaque on the wall of my office is this choice statement. To believe in God is to know that all the rules will be fair and that there will be wonderful surprises. I think that's one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard. There will be wonderful surprises. Verse 4, who comforteth us in our tribulation, in other words, the Holy Ghost is a comforter, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any, any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. We have covenanted to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual, in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation." For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust, that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that then in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what we read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit. Sidney Sperry said, in, this, in his original plans, the apostle had purposed to visit Corinth twice by going directly from Ephesus to Corinth, and thence into Macedonia and back to Corinth again, from whence he would set sail for Judea. This plan had been made before Paul had written 1 Corinthians, and his intentions had been made known to the saints at Corinth, either by a messenger or through a Corinthian letter now lost to us. The apostle would probably have never made any mention of his original plan had not his critics in Corinth charged him with being fickle. In defending himself against their accusations, he tells us about his first plan, which later underwent revision. Verse 16, And to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or levity, 
or the things that I purpose do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there shall be ye your, there shall be yea yea and nay nay but as God is true our word toward you was not yea and nay at the heart of the contention in the church at Corinth are those who have ridiculed Paul and denied his authority his necessary response is a bold and vigorous defense of his apostolic authority and his work in the ministry some had accused him of walking according to the flesh, and others had ridiculed his physical appearance and his inelegant speech. Elsewhere, in the same letter, he addressed the charges that he was vacillating and indecisive. I guess a lot of us get accused, don't we, of uh, not being able to speak well or not having a very good appearance or whatever. So those are criticisms that are superficial and not really of any substance anyway. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establisheth us, establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, the earnest is a guarantee or a down payment, so to speak. An earnest is something of value given by a buyer to a seller to bind the bargain or a token of, or installment of what is to come. God communicates to us that we are following a proper course by sending His Spirit. The Holy Ghost thus represents God's earnest money on us, His down payment, His goodwill gesture and assurance to us that He is serious about saving us and that one day He will own us and claim us fully as His. And that was by Robert Millett. Paul speaks of a three-step process being first anointed, second sealed, and third being given the earnest of the Spirit. It is one thing to be anointed and another to be sealed. An anointing without the sealing means nothing. All covenants that are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise are of no efficacy. On the other hand, once the anointing is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, the contract is valid in the next world almost without exception. The next step is to be given the knowledge that the anointing has been sealed. The earnest of our inheritance, as Paul calls it, is to know that we, you have been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We can be given the earnest of the Spirit in two ways, indirectly through the companionship of the Spirit in our hearts, or as a direct promise of the Lord. There is a way we can know that our efforts are acceptable, that our covenant is recognized and valid before God. If we experience the gifts of the Spirit or the influence of the Holy Ghost, we can know that we are in the covenant relationship, for the gifts and companionship of the Holy Ghost are given to none else. This is one reason why the gift of the Holy Ghost is given as a token and assurance of our covenant status and as a down payment to us on the blessings and glory to come if we are faithful. Paul refers to the Holy Ghost as the earnest of our inheritance, a reference to earnest money, which though only a token payment makes a deal binding when it changes hands. Thus, the earnest money of the Spirit in our hearts assures us of the validity and efficacy of our deal, our covenant with God. Do you feel the influence of the Holy Ghost in your life? Do you enjoy the gifts of the Spirit? Then you can know that God accepts your faith, repentance, and baptism, and has agreed that you may always have His Spirit to be with you. This is perhaps one reason why the Holy Ghost is called the Comforter, because if we enjoy that gift, we can know that our efforts are acceptable for now, and that we are justified before God by our faith in Christ, and that is comfort indeed. And that was by Stephen Robinson. <clears throat> The Holy Spirit of promise is, of course, the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Spirit promised the saints. The Lord continued, the, the Comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom. 
It is by that Holy Spirit of promise that the saints of the Most High receive receive what the Apostle Paul called the earnest of our inheritance, by which they come to know that their lives are in order, that they are on course and in covenant, that they are in Christ and thus in line for eternal life. It is through that Holy Spirit of promise that the people of God receive their reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Elder Marion G. Romney observed, That the fullness of eternal life is not attainable in mortality, but the peace which is its harbinger and which comes as a result of making one's calling and election sure is attainable in this life. That peace, unlike anything the world has to offer, a peace that passeth all understanding, comes through the Spirit. That was by Robert Millet. But is there any way to know we are saved other than receiving the more sure word of prophecy? I think there is. That same Holy Spirit of promise that searches the hearts of men and women, that ratifies and approves and seals ordinances and lives, that same Holy Spirit serves, as Paul indicates, as the earnest of our inheritance. Though this passage refers specifically to being sealed up unto eternal life, I believe the principle is also true in regard to our qualifying for and cultivating the gift and influence of the Holy Ghost. That is, the Lord sends to us the earnest of the Spirit as an evidence that our lives are in order. The Lord's earnest money on us, his down payment, his indication to us that we that he will save us is the Holy Spirit. We know that we are on course when we have the companionship of the Spirit. We know that our lives are approved of God when we have the companionship of the Spirit. We know that we are in Christ, in covenant, when we have the companionship of the Spirit. And we know, I suggest, that we are saved when we, are tr- when we truly have the, compa- the constant companionship of the Spirit. Again, that was by Robert Millet. Joseph Smith said, Now for the secret and grand key to be sealed in the heavens and have the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God, then having this promise sealed unto them, it was an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast. Though the thunders might roll, and lightnings flash, and earthquakes bellow, and war gather thick around, yet this hope and knowledge would support the soul in every hour of trial, trouble, and tribulation. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. That's the end of the chapter. Just a reminder here that uh, that the earnest money of uh, from God is the Holy Spirit, that we can have the gift of the Holy Ghost with us constantly, and that's evidence that we will be exalted someday as long as we keep our covenants. Anyway, that's the end of the chapter, and we'll see you next time. Bye.